Imagine you are living in Virginia. You run a boarding house in the growing city of Norfolk with your spouse and business is good. With a large port so close, you get plenty of visitors day and night who come in after a long day of work at Gosport Shipyard just across the waterway. Iron workers, tool maintainers, and men of all trades walk through your doors and recently you've been hearing about this strange ship that is supposed to be made of steel. Think of it. A ship made of metal. How would that even float? And it has cannons on it too? At least, that's what those steel workers said last night anyways. Imagine that. But Gosport is a confederate ship here. If they have a ship like that, could the Union ever stand a chance to defeat it? In 1862, the war between the Union and the Confederate States of America had been going on for a year, and this is exactly the situation that Mary Levestra found herself in. Join us as we talk about Mary Levestra, the ironclad spy that may have saved the Union. Welcome to Talk With History. I'm your host, Scott, here with my wife and historian, Jen. Hello. On this podcast, we give you insights to our history-inspired world travels, YouTube channel journey, and examine history through deeper conversations with the curious, the explorers, and the history lovers out there. Now, before we start, I want to thank the over 100 people that have signed up for the Hashtag Historic Newsletter. We got that back off the ground after the new year, and we just put out a great one that talks about how the U.S. government always almost shuttered the P-51 Mustang before it became the pivotal aircraft of World War II, and other fascinating history snippets and links. This newsletter is a monthly roundup of interesting history articles, videos, podcast recommendations, and more. So head over to historynewsletter.com, and you can sign up for free. That's historynewsletter.com. Now, Jen, obviously, we're talking about the video that just po- posted yesterday. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about, set the stage for us on Mary Levestri, who we're, ca- we're calling the Ironclad Spy. So it's Women's History Month, and we're kicking off Women's History Month yep. with uh, a union spy. And it's the beginning of the Civil War. It's 1861. And we have a woman of color living in Norfolk who is running the boarding house in Norfolk uh, across the Elizabeth River, across to the Gosport shipyard, which today is the Norfolk shipyard. And if you've seen the video, I mean, there is naval ships actually being fixed and retrofitted and dry docked and all the things that happen to Navy ships um, in dock. And so uh, it's a shipyard still in use today. But in April of 1861, it was undergoing a lot of changes because Virginia is going to secede from the Union That's right. in, on April 17th, 1861. And not even three days, April 20th, 1861, uh, the Union is pushed out of the Gosport shipyard. The Gosport shipyard. And that's and that's one thing that I, I didn't realize because we've just been doing all these more Civil War mm-hmm. kind of topics recently. We just did Fort Norfolk. And Fort Norfolk is not far away. No. And Fort Norfolk was Union held the entire time. No, 
Monroe was held. That's what I meant. Okay. For, Fort, Fort Monroe. Yeah. Fort Monroe. Yeah. Right. It's. I mean, it's literally just across. It's not far. Like driving wise, you could probably get from now today. Yes. From the shipyard over to Fort Monroe, what maybe twenty thirty minutes? Yeah, definitely. But I would assume there's no bridge in sure. 1861 like yeah. there are today. Yep. And it's fortified. As we show in the video, has a moat around it and a very small bridge to get across. But not not a long sail for ships at the time. Not a long sail for, and that's how people basically traveled. Yeah, at they the had time. a ferry. Yeah. Now Fort Norfolk, you did mention Fort Norfolk, and that is another video we do as well. Uh, that was taken by the Confederacy. Right, and that was that's actually even closer. Even closer. That's even closer because it's I'm literally it's almost like asked. right across mm-hmm. the river, basically. Yes. Yes. Um, but Fort Monroe is is a little bit further away, but it's not that far. It's Fort Monroe is just closer, basically, to the ocean. If Which you're kind is, of picturing it in your head, kind of interesting because we're going to talk more about Fort Monroe in in a moment and how it's it never goes to the Confederacy, and it's in the southern part of Virginia, which is a Confederate state. I mean, it's where technic it's where the capital of the Confederacy is in Richmond. It's where Robert E. Lee is from. It is like a Confederate state, but you have Fort Monroe kind of like in the southern part of it on the coast that is always Union held. It's funny, you know, even as we talk about it, um, what pops into my head is like you ever play Risk right? when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. And there's like there's very key spots on the board that you want to hold. And for the Union Fort Monroe was one of those spots. Right. I mean, that was like they did everything they could to to hang on to it. It was easily defendable, Absolutely. but they did everything they could. So we're we're kind of so we're we're, going, we're veering off. But here. it's important to the story. It is. It's okay. important. It's important to the story because where we are here in Norfolk. Yes. You know, we basically we kind of just get to go to what's nowadays downtown Norfolk to visit where Mary Levestre used to live. So and Mary Levestre is going to use Fort Monroe as part of her plan. So we'll get into that. April 17th, Virginia secedes from the Union. April 20th, the Union burns Gosport shipyard. So nothing goes into the Confederates' hands. And the ship, the Merrimack, is burned down to the waterline. And so the Confederacy takes over Gosport shipyard on April 21st, the next day. And they take that ship that is burned down to the waterline and start to reinforce it with iron, metal, uh, plates and we show a good picture kind of like how they how they did that and they start to build up the css virginia so the first ironclad of the confederacy right across that waterway which everyone is pretty much traveling by boat at this time because there's no bridges like we have today they're taking ferries from the from the shipyard back over to the boarding house boarding house Right across the waterway on in norfolk is a boarding house owned by a free woman of color Mary Louvestri, and you'll see her name as Tuvestri, um, and her maiden name is Ogilvy, and you'll see other things online that she was enslaved, but she was never enslaved. And this research was done by um, some Norfolk librarians who were able to put together her mother and her father were free people of color, and they married, and Mary was their daughter, and if you remember, a child always becomes the status of the mother and a, a child of color. And since Mary's mother was free, Mary was free. And so she's born in 1812 and she's first registered as a, a free 
person of color in 1828. So she's 16 years old. So that's kind of like the time you register somebody. And one of the things that I appreciated about you kind of making this point that she was free the whole time, which was which was rare, but it was not so rare that it was completely uncommon. Yes. You know, you talk about the population then about a, you know, what, 20, 25% of the African-Americans that were in living in the Norfolk area were free. free. So you have about, it's 1840, 11,000 people living in Norfolk, 40 per, 43% are African-American or black. Um, that's about half. And of that population, 22% are free. So one fourth are free. So that's about a thousand people. So it's not rare to be free, but it is very much you you are under the social consciousness of your surroundings. You're living in a slave state. You're a person of color. Enslavement is uh, predominantly is African-American. So you always have to carry your, your freedom, your certificate of freedom. That's why she's registered at 16 years old. And you're always carrying paperwork that proves your freedom. And, and I think you even talked about, and it didn't make the video. It just it, it didn't fit into the story. She actually ended up buying mm-hmm. like a the, essentially like a little boy, yeah. And kind of essentially, she she took him on mm-hmm. kind of more as a it seemed like an act of kindness. Took him on, kind of raised him, and then gave him his freedom when he was a little bit older. That didn't make the video, but I thought that was an interesting point that you brought up. Um, even though it didn't make the you know my my yeah. editor's cut. So in 1939, she does purchase a little boy, ten year old boy, from a local doctor. He is from the same area as her father. Her father is a French from the uh, Caribbean yeah. area, and the little boy is the same um, background. And so she feels very drawn to him, and she um, she purchases him, and he does stuff around the boarding house, and then she gives him his freedom when he turns 18. She probably did. I, you know, I, I conjured that, you know, he was probably abused in some way sure. and she wanted to offer, you know. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was interesting. And it was just kind of an interesting piece of how it kind of builds the character that is Mary Louvestri, who did this very brave act. Yes. You know, that we're going to discuss here in just a minute. And it speaks really to kind of her character and, and it may explain kind of a piece of her motivation. Sure. And, you know, we give a lot of background of her birth because her parents are free again people of color who are free in an enslaved state so they're operating under those social norms they have to be very strong you have to be they want even a choice so then to raise children and stay in a slave state and and make a life there she has to have seen some kind of you know strength and someone who is a risk taker or someone who's very sure of themselves in both parents. So she marries a gentleman who was on a Navy ship. He was a ship steward. And uh, they get a license for the boarding house. And together they operate the boarding house uh, right off the, we we have a, a map of it. It was on Niveson Street, which is, Today, you see the uh, gold star if you're looking at, if you're watching this live. If not, if you're listening to this live on the podcast, it's where the modern day Sheridan Norfolk Waterside Hotel is. It is is right on the waterfront. You'll see in our video, we're walking right in front of the Sheraton that's right on the waterfront right there. And we literally turn around and, and the Elizabeth River is right there. Yes. So they basically can see 
them building the ironclad. So not only is the boarding house like they're watching them build the ironclad, but Mary's husband, Michael Louvestri, who we talk about their marriage in 1844, and we talk about the church that they're married in. We talk about that for two reasons. One, there is primary source document that supports their marriage, which is great find for a historian so we want to you know recognize that yeah, there's there's the marriage records in the church yes but for a person of color to get married in 1840 um they actually married in 1844 that's also rare because people don't at the time don't want to recognize that people of color can do that right can do that kind of status of marriage and at some points People still use her maiden name because they don't want to give her the status of a married woman. Yeah, her maiden name was Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Right. But uh, Louvestri uh, is her married name. So Michael Louvestri, who owns the boarding house with Mary, actually works at the shipyard. And he works in the steam department. He's a tool, uh, the steam engineering department. He actually takes care of the tools. Yeah, tool maintainer. Yeah, tool keeper. Yeah. And he works with another union sympathizer, William Lyons. Mm-hmm. And we actually go to William Lyons's grave. So they're working together in the steam department of the CSS Virginia uh, shipbuilding. And they're coming back over to the boarding house with other shipbuilders yep. and people who are building. And they're discussing changes or plans or technology updates. And they're pulling out blueprints and they're pulling out plans and Mary Louvestri is a part of all of this. She's part of watching this. She's part of gathering the information. And so it's between them that they decide that she is the safest person to bring this information to the union. Yeah. And it I, it's interesting to me and I don't know if there'd be any documentation that would kind of speak to whether or not they, like, before this started happening, they already kind of knew, like, hey, we're on the side of the union, or they were just kind of, like, there living, and then this opportunity arose and said, they had that conversation amongst themselves and said, hey, we should probably get this to the side that we believe in, Mm -hmm. which uh, ultimately something like that happened because they ended up doing it. Yes. Like I said, April 21st, April 20th, it's burned. April 21st, uh, the shipyard's taken over by the Confederacy, 1861. It's not very long. It's summer of 1861 where Mary Louvestri goes to Fort Monroe for the first time and meets General Wool and says, I'm privy to information. I'm privy to shipbuilders of the of an ironclad. And but I want people to understand this is new technology for shipbuilding. No one's done this. Really? Iron on the side of a ship and it's not going to sink? Like, it's it's unheard of. And so this is, this is important intel. I can't even distress. Like, it is... When people think of the Civil War and ship technology, it's the battle of the ironclads that changes the world. Yeah, and, and we talk about that in our ironclad yeah. video. Like, th- this was kind of a, a seminal moment for the globe. For the globe. For I mean, everybody. Shipbuilding changes in that right. moment. And so this, this espionage, this secret that she has is like top tier secret. Right. And so she goes to General Wool in the summer and tells him, I have this information. So by December, he gives her a pass. And he gives her a pass to travel. So if you can imagine in the Civil War, Virginia is Confederate state. Fort Monroe is a Union fort. 
and he's giving her a pass to travel through the state. And so they did this during the Civil War because it's America. It's still operating. And yeah, so people still need to live and trade still yeah, kind of happened a little it's bit. It's called a flag of truce. Yeah. And people could use it to travel, to see family, because, uh, you know, brother versus brother. And really the most unassuming person that people don't think are doing anything is women and mostly colored women. So she is the perfect person for espionage. And and this is this is another place where you kind of point out the accurate details where as I was searching online and we encourage folks listening and those watching the live stream, you know, you have to be careful about when you search up online because the first couple hits in Google when you when you look up her name is old kind of either blogs or or posts or something like that and they're incorrect when they say like she was given a pass to go visit her old master. She never had an old master, so that's not accurate. Yeah. So you have to be careful when you're doing this kind of research, and that's one of the things that I think that you bring to the channel and that you bring to this podcast as a historian who does thorough research, and that and that's important because um, some of the stuff that you dug a little bit, and obviously you weren't looking at the primary source documents your, yourself, but you found the the articles about about other historians who found those documents. And there and uh, General Wool's paper still exists at Fort Monroe. Yeah. And that tra- travel that flag of truce travel pass still exists. Oh, I didn't know that. And his reason for her traveling is colored woman. Right. So he doesn't even have a reason. Right. <laughs> really like I don't know if he even expects someone to look at it. <laughs> they they probably don't. And and that and you bring that up on the video. She's the perfect spy, unassuming. No one's gonna like, really, what's this lady doing? And, and you know one of the things that clicked for me, and I don't even think it had clicked for you, but when I was looking at the timeline, she was fifty when she yeah. did this. Yeah, because she's born in nineteen twelve. So she's, she's like forty nine. Yeah, she's. So I mean, eighteen twelve. Eighteen twelve. Yeah. So yeah, she's she's forty nine, about to turn fifty. I mean, that's that's pretty wild, right? So here's here's a woman who's you know black at the time, even though she's free, also being a woman, also being, also woman. being a bit older. Obviously, nobody's going to be like, oh yeah, there's a union spy over there. That's not what they're thinking. They're not, but they're thinking. But there is the chance if she is captured. What do you think the future holds for her? She would be immediately enslaved That's a great point. by the south like if she is caught and found to be a union spy which i don't even know if they would give her that agency but they would just they would just make her as enslave her and so she's risking her freedom doing this she's risking her life doing this so in december she gets the the pass from general wool at fort monroe and she actually makes the trip February of 1862. So about two months later, winter time, usually a lot of battles aren't going on in the winter time. People are traveling. It's not crops in the field. And so she makes it up to Washington, D.C. So we show Norfolk to D.C. is 70 hours for her to travel by foot, by boat, by wagon, 70 hours. She gets up to Washington, D.C. and she only will speak to the secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, nobody else. So imagine woman of color walking into Gideon Wells's office and all the people between him and her, secretaries, chief of staffs, you know, people like, oh, just give it to me, just give it to me. No, she refuses. A woman of color refuses every white man and says, no, I'm going to speak directly 
to Secretary of the Navy. It's not like she just kind of walked in with nothing. She did have the the pass from the general. From the general, but that's Wool. all she had. That's all she had. She's and, not showing anything else. And and back then, most would expect her to be like, "Oh yeah, here's the secret thing that I'm carrying. Please deliver it to the Secretary mm-hmm. of the Navy." And she said, "Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I need to speak to him directly." She's not even telling him what she has, just that she needs to speak to him directly. And because no one knows what she has. She gets right in front of him. And when she gets in front of him from her dress, from her dress, like all the petticoats, she pulls out the blueprints of the CSS Virginia. So it's it's that moment that she has everything. This is what they're building. This is what it looks like. This is the technology that you're using. Any updates they're making. She has all of it. She leaves such an impression on Wells. And we talk about this, that when he comes back to Norfolk in 1868, after the war, he inquires about her. Where's that woman that came to see me? Yeah, I think he wrote a letter to like a, a local military official yes. in the Norfolk area. To check on her. To check he on wanted, her. He wanted to find her, couldn't find her. And the, and the local That's official like her. kind of tracked her down. He was like, hey, I found her. So he, so there's there's correspondence, yeah. right? Again, those, That's those letters. That's the Library of Congress. Yeah, those letters exist as well. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, hey, I found her. And so She's I think still he, at the boarding house. Right. So I think he, didn't he come to visit? Did he come to visit her? He Is came, that right? He came down to Norfolk and tried to find her and couldn't. Okay. And that's when he writes the letter. Can someone find her? Mm. And then they find her and let him know that she's okay. But this is 1862. This is February of 1862. The Battle of the Ironclads is going to happen uh, March 8th and 9th of 1862. So really, it's like a month later. Yeah, so, so they take these plans and they're like, hey, yeah. go. <laughs> Can you show the show the picture of the ironclad? So if you're watching um, this live, and I'll talk about it. The Virginia is, you can see how it's built above the waterline. It kind of looks like they have stacked metal, leaned it against each other. It's almost like a tent feature. And they have cannons coming out of the monitor is quite different. The monitor real the metal doesn't really go above the waterline except for one kind of round. I think it's almost like a turret that's right. up there with yeah. a, a gun that goes 360. So it makes the monitor, in my opinion, harder to hit because it's so flat. And the Virginia is a little bit easier. It's more of a target since it's out of the water. But this is what the two ironclads look like. And if you know anything about the Battle of the Ironclads. The, the CSS Virginia attacks first and it's attacking Union ships that are wooden and they are just foundering and one of them kind of runs aground. Yeah, it basically, <laughs> to save it, it basically just kind of rolls through and like mows them all down. Yeah, and one runs aground to save itself and this Virginia goes back to Fort Norfolk for the night and that ship stays, it's, it's burning and it stays lit, but they're able to get. Uh, word up to DC that they have released their ironclad and so the monitor comes down the coast and that's why they say the battle is March 8th and 9th the monitor makes it down that night and it sees the fire of that ship that has run aground and the Virginia is coming back to kind of end that ship it took them you know went back for the night rested it's coming back in the morning to kind of end the people in that ship and just obliterate that ship and it, that's when it meets the monitor. Yeah, and, and if you ever, uh, we show it briefly on this video, mm-hmm. and if you go back and watch our Battle of the Ironclads video, we show it a lot in a little bit longer, a little more detail. Like, I mean, these these ships are circling around each other for hours and hours and hours, just like keep trying to shoot each yeah. other, and cannonballs are bouncing <laughs> off, and they're not doing anything, and they're not like, this is brand new, we don't know how to do this. So it's it's kind of like a stalemate, right? I think it's like for three hours, they chase each other back and forth and all around, and 
both of them are firing. Both of uh, their, you know, uh, artillery is, is bouncing off of the metal. And we say that this is such a, a world experience because people are watching this battle. And it just, the word just travels. This, these ships are invincible. And so shipbuilding, this is when I used to, in the picture, you'll you see an old wooden ship in the background because it really is. That's it. They don't make wooden ships anymore. It's done. Now all ships are going to be metal from here on out. As, and today, military ships are all metal as today. So that this is the moment that does that. Without those plans from Mary Louvestri and, of course, William Lyons and, of course, Michael Louvestri, who risked their lives to get them, the Union would not have been prepared for that. Would not have known what they were doing and what they were making. And so it was just... It's so paramount in that moment that it really was a, a secret that really saved the Union in, in that regard and in that battle. Yeah, it was really just such an incredible story. And it was, it was a fun one to make because that's that's a that's an exciting story, right? That's it's a successful, exciting story. And again, from from a production standpoint, which is what I like to talk about, because I don't know the history. But from a production standpoint, it was fun to make, right? You kind of get to pick the music mm-hmm. and kind of set the mood and kind of increase the the intensity. And then at the end, you show the, the pictures, you know, that we've all seen in, in history books and stuff like that of that Battle of the Ironclads. Yes. And the reason there was a Battle of the Ironclads is because of what she did. Because of what she did. And it's a woman. It's a woman who who did this. And not only just a woman, but a woman of color that did this. And I think for anybody to kind of... Uh, Foil the Confederacy, yeah. not only a, a woman, but a person of color to do it. It just makes me very proud. And we always talk about um, people, you know, history, people, what's happening to everyone in time when a war is happening. And the Civil War, we do talk about the battles and we do go to the battlefields. But we want to remind you, it's not just impacting soldiers, it's impacting families, it's impacting children, it's impacting women, and every American is going to be touched by the Civil War since it is a war of America. For a woman to do this, it just for me, I, I just admired her so much. I wanted more of the truth of her story to come out, and it's being researched slowly. Uh, and like I said, there's more primary sources that are being uncovered, but I think she needs to get credit for what she has done, and uh, and we we're, were just really proud to bring her story. Yeah, it, again, it was it was super fun. If you haven't watched the video, go go check out the video. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, I will absolutely link to that video in this podcast notes. So bravery comes in all forms, but in 1862, during the thick of the Civil War, Mary Levestri displayed the most classic version of bravery, the kind that stories are told of throughout history. Taking on a secret spy mission for something that she believed in, a cause that was bigger than herself and more important than her livelihood as a free black woman living in Virginia. If she hadn't made it to the Secretary of Navy, Gideon Wells, would the Union have ever made the USS Monitor? Could they have defeated the Confederacy at sea without this revolutionary steel shipbuilding? Is this one act the one that turned the tide of the Civil War? Luckily, we have Mary Louvestri's actions to thank for accomplishing that vital mission for the Union and possibly for the war itself. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, you may like our past episode that we talked about on Battle of the Ironclads and our upcoming episode about the Confederate spy Rose Greenhow, whose work was credited for the South's success at the first Battle of Bull Run. 
So thank you for listening to the Talk With History podcast. If you know someone else that might enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. We rely on you, our community, to grow, and we appreciate you all every day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.